In this episode, I answer a question from a Patreon member about whether or not we can co-regulate with someone that traumatized us. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage family therapist that thinks the world needs a new paradigm for mental health. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken. So this is a Patreon question that I'm repurposing uh, for here. This uh, was released a few months ago. Basically, I just completed the Polyvagal 101 webinar this weekend, and I'm in the process of doing a bit of editing before I release it for sale as a replay. So hopefully within the next week, because it's taken a long time, it's like a three-hour webinar. It's a big webinar. And hopefully within the next week, by the time the next episode comes out, Hopefully that'll be done. Check justinlmft.com to see if it's ready to roll. Uh, but you'll be able to buy that. And it's not just like you rent it and you can have access to it for a month. No, like once you buy it, you buy it. And you'll be able to have access to it. As long as my website's up and running, you will have access to the uh, replay of Polybagel 101. As far as this episode goes, uh, please put yourself first. This one in particular might be a little challenging. You may be able to relate. And you might even have the same curiosity about people in your own life, specifically parents. The answer is more complex than you might think. So please do check in with yourself uh, during this one. This podcast is not therapy, nor is it intended to be a replacement for therapy. These are my general thoughts and not specific advice to you or the writer or anybody else. So it starts off with a little bit of love, which I appreciate. She says, Dear Justin, hi, I'm Daphne. I've been following your podcast for a couple of months after searching for podcasts on trauma. I truly appreciate your work and how you're sharing it. For me, after listening to your podcast and doing your Building Safety Anchors course, I've made significant shifts in how I view behaviors from me and the people in my life. Uh, this is me interjecting here. Thank you so much, Daphne, for being a part of Building Safety Anchors. I'm glad that it's been helpful for you. Thank you for being a patron and for listening to the podcast. I appreciate that so much. And I'm really glad that all of that's been helpful for you. Daphne goes on to say, I actually feel like I make sense and others around me just make sense. I'm applying political theory to how I move about in the world. From the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you for your podcast, your blog, and BSA course. You're very welcome, Daphne. Altogether, they make polyvagal theory understandable. Accessing my own self-regulation with safety anchors is something I'm trying now in my daily life. Perfect. Yeah, this needs to be daily practice uh, for all of us. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear, really glad to hear that you are doing that. So thank you for all the positivity. Thank you for the love. Now we're going to move on into her question. This has a lot of substance to it. I'm going to kind of break this up into chunks and just provide my thoughts on it. She says, I have a question about climbing up the ladder from a sympathetic state, particularly in family relationships. A source of childhood trauma for me was my dad. I started going on a journey of trauma healing through therapy and self-help in my 30s. But now, even as a 40-year-old adult, I still get into a state of defensive energy right away when my dad and I interact. So I'm going to pause there and just say that no matter what our age is, even at the old, old age of 40, and Daphne, I'm right there with you, okay? So I'm allowed to say that. Even at the old age of 40, and I love because when people older than 40 hear this, <laughs> They uh, hopefully they'll chuckle at that, all right. But even at the old age of forty, yeah, we still get into these defensive states, uh, depending on what what's going on, you know. So if it's around a certain person or in a certain environment, that might bring up this defensive energy. It doesn't exactly just go away. The sympathetic state, uh, it's there for a reason, and we have to, we may have had to utilize it and maybe got stuck in it 
growing up, and that could even be with a parent. So just because we get old doesn't mean that <laughs> I'm playing, by the way. I know 40 isn't old, but relatively it, it kind of is, but I'll, I'll leave it alone. So even at 40 years old, we, uh, we still can have that stuff within us. It doesn't just go away on its own. It sounds like Daphne and hopefully listener, you are doing some sort of therapy or self-healing, whatever you want to call it, or uh, just wellness work. Uh, hopefully you're doing something to alleviate our, your, and for myself as well, our stuck defensive states. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away with age, unfortunately. It really takes the work. It really takes us accessing and building the strength of our vagal break. And that's what Building Safety Anchors is all about, even at the age of 40. So even if this sympathetic energy is not a problem in other contexts, it could very well be a problem in certain contexts. That's super normal, especially when it comes to talking about traumatic events or potentially traumatic events that we've been through. That's extremely very uh, normal. Okay, it's expected that if that trauma has not been dealt with or healed or alleviated or we haven't gotten unstuck from it, that that defensive energy is going to come right back in whatever context. So throw away the age and let's just look at this as stuck defensive energy despite age, okay? Freeze trauma in particular, though, is going to be really, I think, a part of what's being discussed, or it could be. Now, I don't know the trauma here, and Daphne, don't write to me, don't leave a comment, don't tell me what you're referring to, because again, this is, I'm just talking in general, okay? So we don't know what the traumatic incident was, or incidents, but if, if it comes to it could be. It could be stuck frozen energy where we are mobilized but shut down at the same time. So it could be that. And when we have that freeze shock trauma kind of stuff, uh, in certain situations that can resurface. It could also be that we just had to live in a state of defense, whether it's flight, fight, or even shutdown. And that now when we're in those contexts again, yeah, that, that could come up again, right? Obviously. So I think the first step here is to no matter who's listening, this, again, this is not just for Daphne, this is for everybody. A really helpful first step and, I th- step, and I think a necessary first step is to normalize and validate your feelings and your polyvagal state as well. So when I say normalize, that means to look at the context of what you went through or what childhood was like, and then look at the context of how you feel now, the state and your feelings, and even the stories in your mind. And to normalize and say, well, this is what I went through, and this is where I'm at right now, and yeah, that makes sense. You know, that's what I would expect. And I would also encourage everybody to validate their feelings. And that doesn't mean, what that means, what validation to me means is that you're just recognizing the feelings that are there and allowing them to be there. So if somebody, if a friend was talking to me and saying how they felt, and I as a friend just said, yeah, it sounds like you're feeling whatever it is they would feel validated. Their feelings would be seen and understood, not judged, not minimized. It's just, yes, I see that feeling in you and that's it. And so I think that we can do that for ourselves as well. Meaning we look at these feelings and say, this is how I feel. I do feel this way around this certain person, not minimizing, not judging. That is what it is. And I'm just going to recognize that. So I think normalizing and validating is a really good first step. What we do about this stuff, I know when we get in a sympathetic state, we want answers, we want solutions, coping skills, grounding skills, whatever it is. But what to do about it can come next. First, 
normalize and validate. She goes on to say, I go into sympathetic and I immediately want to flee and make distance between us. Otherwise, I will go further down the ladder into fight mode. And I can sense that my voice, language, and body just feel more activated and aggressive. It's awkward because he's visiting me and staying in my home for now. I'm trying to climb out of sympathetic in these moments, but my vagal break isn't as strong when it comes to interacting with my dad. There is a lot of trauma history in our relationship, and I feel so disconnected from him. So I will say this, I I don't want to ever, of course, minimize, this is not an attempt to minimize, anybody's upbringing. So, but, but, in this context where we have someone living with us who, and I don't, again, I don't, I don't know what the events or lack of events were. If the person that, like the way that I hear this and the way that I would treat this as a therapist, the advice that I would give to a friend, like it, it changes. If, if we're living with someone who sexually abused us growing up, like if a dad sexually abused us and now he's living with us as adults, and he hasn't made any change, and he's still very much um, a dangerous person in some fashion, that's a hell of a lot different to me than a parent who was not capable of building a healthy attachment just due to their own stuff. And of course, that describes pretty much, I mean, any parent, period. But hopefully this makes sense. That if that parent who was, was, was abusive has not made any changes, if that person's living with you compared to the parent who loved you but didn't know how to show it and was very distant or maybe loved you and didn't know how to connect with you or loved you and was very judgmental and there's a distance there, like we can call that trauma. We can call that a lack of a healthy attachment or a severed relationship. But the flavor of that and the potential hope of that, that's kind of what, I think what I'm driving at here, the, the potentiality, the hope of improvement there is to me that's a hell of a lot more than the person who was abusive has never recognized it has never made amends in some fashion has never apologized has never gotten treatment or done their own work in some fashion Ver- i mean that versus the parent who I don't, I don't want to put it this way but did their best and just were not capable of making that healthy attachment which left that child maybe more of a shutdown state that's, you know, that, that parent as a therapist, I feel like I, I can work with that parent pretty easily. The parent that has not done their own work and is in like denial like that, I mean, we'll just go to the extreme. Like that's a hell of a lot more difficult to work with in my opinion. So the flavor of this, the history of these, if these relationships and context really matters. And it would really matter as far, like if a friend told me that I wouldn't just be like, yeah, well, just, you know, talk it out and give them a hug and everything's okay. You know what I mean? But if if it's that really abusive kind of flavor, if it's the flavor of the parent who's just really kind of distant and, you know, they, they, they just can't, they want to, but they just don't know how to. And I've talked with so many parents that fit that bill. And when we can get a dialogue going, change can happen really fast. It's possible. So just advice wise to a friend, like I would really, I don't like giving advice anyways, but that would really flavor the way that I look at the situation. You know what I mean? And if, if it's a situation that things are just not safe and there's still some level of abuse going on, whatever that looks like, that would really, I mean, that would really change how we look at this, how we diagnose it, how we prognose it as a therapist, as a friend, or just as a podcast host who, who's hearing the situation. So the, it's a messy situation. I don't think there's a clear answer here. And I don't think the answer 
is what's um is not the first step anyways and the answer whatever that is is going to be it's going to be different it's going to be different based on context and people and i don't know a lot of factors it's just going to be different and we won't know it i think that if you're in a situation like this you will know the answer once you're well regulated enough and you, i don't think you can predict what it's going to be once you're in that place of state of, a state of safety you have healthy boundaries you're listening to your values you're expecting a certain level of behavior from others. Like once you're in that place, the way you look at situations is significantly different than before that moment, before that, um, that viewpoint. And the answers you come up with, your level of creativity, it changes. So what we can't, the answers aren't there and they're not going to be there, for, at least from, definitely not from me. I can just give my, my thoughts. Okay. And even as a therapist, I don't give answers anyhow. I don't feel like it's my, my job or I don't think it's appropriate to tell people what they should do. I never recommend to my clients that they should cut family out of their life. If that's a solution they come to on their own, fine. But I, I never say, yeah, you got to cut them out or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I always think healthy boundaries are a good idea. Hell yeah. Healthy boundaries are always a good idea. But I think here, what is appropriate is more validation. Instead of, it says, um, and I think a lot of people can relate to this. It says, I'm trying to climb out of sympathetic in these moments. And I get it. And I, that's awesome. And, and, Good job, right? But also not good job. (laughs) We all can relate to this. When we're in sympathetic, that doesn't mean something's bad. It feels bad, right? But it doesn't mean something's wrong. Those feelings might be very accurate. I don't know the context, so but based on history, and maybe even based on the current present-day context, those feelings may be dead-on accurate. So attempting to climb out of sympathetic in a situation where it's needed wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So there's that level, okay? The other level of this is generally, just because we're in these states doesn't mean that we want to get out of it. Like the goal is not to get out of the state. The goal is to be with and attuned to the state. Now, if you're in a situation that is actually dangerous, we don't want to exactly, you know, mindfully close our eyes and be with the energy. We want to get the hell out of the situation, right? So yes. But in general, when we feel these feelings, we want to feel them outside of the dangerous context on their own when we have safety to balance it out. So in, in a context like this, where there's someone that you're with, where these feelings are coming up, we don't want to wait for the moment of the situation where we're with them and we're already feeling that defensive energy. We want to tap into that defensive energy outside of the context of the situation when we're safe when we have our safety anchors available to us, when we're in a safe environment or with safe people. We want to be able to self-regulate while feeling the defensive energy. So it, it's okay to, well, again, again, I'm speaking in general, Daphne, listener, you do what you want. I'm just, I'm speaking in general that generally the way that this stuff works is, or I think the way this stuff works is, we feel these things outside of the context of the situation. So that means when that person's not around, when we're at home, we have a safe spot. And if you did safety anchors, you, hopefully you, you should know that where that safe environment is for you. You should know that already. You should have that set up already, right? So you, you go to that spot, that environmental spot, you have whatever movement or whatever sensory stimuli you need or whatever memory it was, all the pieces of building safety anchors, like have those available based on what you think you'll need. And give yourself a moment, you validate how you feel, you normalize how you feel, and you let yourself feel it. 
you let that sympathetic energy come back up. And that's okay. That's not, that's not a bad thing. You let it come back up. You feel it just a bit or as much as you can handle. We don't want to push it too far. Just you want to feel it a bit. And then you use your safety anchor. So that's kind of how that, that really is how we utilize or how we discharge that sympathetic energy. And I haven't built a course around like how to actually deal with trauma stuff within us. Like I, I've built this, you know, building safety anchors course. And that's really the prelude to the trauma work. Uh, just based on what I do in therapy and what I recommend to my clients outside of therapy and what I can recommend to just people in general, we, we tap into these feelings outside of the context, in a place of safety. Let ourselves feel them. You can journal around it. You can meditate around it. You can draw. You can, whatever, you, whatever creative outlet you have, you can do that. You can dance it out if you want to. So you feel it and do something that allows you to feel it, but also feel safe. Okay, so if meditating into it and allowing that discharge to happen is something you can do, have at it. It's not for everybody. It's not easy. If journaling's your thing, have at it. If you want to feel that sympathetic energy and then do something that would be a discharge for it, like strangle a paper towel roll, have at it. Or pushing against a wall and really feeling it in your muscles, like that might be a good idea. But you feel it in safety. You feel it while you're safe, not in the context of the moment. Because at, at that point, it's like, it could be crisis mode. It could be, I don't want to say too late, but it's a hell of a lot harder to self-regulate in your, in a moment, when you're in a moment that might require some danger energy. She goes on to say, we do have some brief moments of connection, but there are enough moments of sympathetic activation that keep us distant. To be honest, I'm hesitant to make the first steps to repair things between us. It just feels so weird, awkward, and even scary. Yeah, those feelings are, when we do anything outside of our comfort zone, that's kind of the feelings we have, right? That can be some of them. When it comes to interpersonal relationships and trying to mend things, yeah, it can be awkward. It can be scary. It can be definitely weird. And she says, I get a tingly sensation in my chest and a knot in my gut because of past trauma. Misunderstandings between us are left unresolved. I don't feel comfortable being the first one to reach out and repair. Yeah, and of course, and you know, when it comes to uh, parents and their children, ideally, and I think the word should applies here, it, ideally, it should be the parents are, that are the first ones to reach out and say, hey, I messed up. I messed up really bad. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, I want to mend things. I respect that you might not want to. I'm here for you. You know, If you change your mind, uh, I'm doing my own work. This is what I have set up. I'm going to therapy once a week. You know, Whatever that sounds like. It should be, ideally, the parents that are the ones, I think, even with grown children, adult children. Ideally, it's the parents that are going to be the ones that to step up and say, to, to, to start that, right? Realistically, that's not going to happen. Generationally, that's not okay for, like, you know, some generations, that is not okay for my generation at 40 years old now. I think those are conversations that we can have with our kids. I think that's normalized. That's okay. For my kids, I, I really hope that they can be the ones to, to do that. And that's very normalized that parents can be more sensitive and, and uh, introspective and say, I messed up. And I hope I'm modeling that for my kids. But, you know, realistically, point being, situations like these might, it just might not be that way. The parent might not be the one to step up and say, we, we need to work on this. I'm working on myself and I, I really want to help us out here. But at the same time, it is also okay to allow yourself to feel those moments of connection. If, if they are true feelings of connection, if it's like we're both feeling awkward and just smiling through it, I mean, it's still something. It's still something. If it's, you know, nothing has changed, 
this other person is still in a deep state of denial. They don't take me seriously. They don't want to change. Nothing has changed. And you're smiling through that. That doesn't seem genuine to me. Awkward moments of connection, that seems genuine or could be. It, real moments of connection, yeah, that, that's genuine, right? So I think it's okay to allow yourself to feel that, but I think we, we need to discern, is this a genuine feeling of connection where there's empathy happening, there's eye contact, there's smiling, there maybe there's eye squints, they understand how I feel, I feel understood. If it's like that, yeah, soak it up. I think it's okay to do that. I think it's okay to do that. I think it's also okay that when those moments are there that you make, that you comment on and say that you really appreciate them, the person or the moment. You don't want to make it awkward. I know you don't want, you don't want to question it and say, well, why, why don't we do this more often? Or why couldn't you have done this 20 years ago? You don't want to do that. But just say, hey, I, I really appreciated this moment with you. Thank you. I love you, whoever it is. You know, it might be something like that. I think it's okay to comment on it. I think it's okay to, to, to bring some conscious awareness to it and say, hey, I, this meant something to me and I appreciate it. Thank you. At the same time, you don't want to get your hopes up, I'm sure. And this is pretty common. We don't want to get our hopes up that our parents are going to, or our spouse or whoever it is, is going to follow through the next time and that we will feel understood all over again. I mean, we want it to happen, but that might not happen, especially depending on kind of where they're at in their own change process. So it's okay to, I think it's okay to appreciate what happened in that moment, but realistically with healthy boundaries, putting your values first, can we expect it again? We can expect it, but will it happen again realistically? It it might not. So just, I guess, keep those things balanced in, in mind. Appreciate them in the moment. And again, if we're currently in an unsafe situation, we have to prioritize that. If these people in our lives are, are still unsafe in some fashion, we have to prioritize that. Daphne wraps it up with one more paragraph. She says, deep down, I want for my dad and I to be able to co-regulate and have a relaxed and attuned relationship. But because of my childhood trauma, I wonder if it's even, I wonder if it is even practical for me to try to create a co-regulating relationship. Can co-regulation happen if the one person making the repair is a traumatized individual who has been traumatized by the other? It's been a challenge for me to climb up the ladder from a sympathetic state in those activated moments when I'm engaged with my dad. I'm wondering, during arguments or misunderstandings when we're in flight-fight mode, if there are some techniques or behaviors to help us repair and co-regulate to somehow get us both into a safe and social state. So the answer to the last question, are there, are there techniques and behaviors? Uh, yeah, probably. And I, I don't know what those are for any one in particular. I think you have to really be curious about that on your own. But that, that's part of the problem here is that in these situations where there's two people who are not co-regulating and, and there is a history of trauma, whatever that is, do these two people even want to you know, work on that together? Because I think both people kind of have to have some investment in making things better. Are there then, are there ways to cope in these situations and ground yourselves? Are there techniques and tools? Yeah, there are, but you, you both kind of have to want to use them and probably talk about that beforehand and, and whatnot and, and come at it you know, together. Can we provide co-regulation without the other person being willing to accept it? Yes and no. We can still offer our cues of safety and whatnot. And, and with co-regulation, it's not something we consciously do, though. That's the, that's the thing here. We can consciously feel our stuck 
energy or feel whatever's inside of us and self-regulate, we can consciously uh, allow ourselves to self-regulate. And conscientiously doing so is kind of part of it. But that's different than co-regulation. Co-regulation after, happens after one person is sufficiently self-regulated. And then that sufficiently self-regulated person will give off natural cues of safety. They don't really have to think about it. They will naturally have more vocal prosody. They'll naturally have more eye crinkles. They'll naturally smile when appropriate. So they'll naturally do that. And as that organism, that person, that mammal, as they naturally give off those cues of safety, the other one will pick them up, will pick up on it. Now, the other person in this situation, that that doesn't mean that they're going to change their behavior, though. That doesn't mean they'll be able to pick up on it and then climb their own ladder. That doesn't mean that they have any familiarity with co-regulation and how to feel safe. Again, this really just, I mean, it's so dependent on who's in the room, what is the context of, you know, whatever's happening, what it, what is the history of the traumatic stuff. It, I mean... I, th- I think it's and really, especially it's like, what's that person's level of motivation to change? You know, how much awareness do they have of their own state, of their feelings, all that kind of comes into play. We can't really, I'm sure you know this, everybody, but you, you can't really force someone to regulate. We can't, co-regulation is not exactly a tool because I think tools are something that we choose to use and have some sort of conscious direction of and co-regulation is not exactly that it's really this spontaneous showing of safety that happens naturally when we're in our ventral vagal state of safety and social engagement we don't we don't exactly say okay now i'm going to smile and throw this cue of safety at someone and, and watch their behavior change that's not the way it works and even if you did, even if you were able to smile or if you were able to crinkle your eyes sufficiently, that, that doesn't mean the rest of your body is also able to fake it. So if you're able to smile, but you're really not in your safety state, I think that people pick up on that disingenuous uh, smile because the rest of the body might be tense. So it won't come across as, as not, it won't come across as believable, as natural, as genuine. So is it practical? The question is, is it, is it even practical for me to try to create a co-regulating relationship? In general, to me, this so depends on the other person's willingness to make change in their life. I mean, if someone is motivated to make change, they're fed up with their own state, they're trying to, you know, uh, work their way up their own political ladder, they're probably much more likely to accept somebody's co-regulation. They're in a better place. They're more they know something better is out there. But if you have that person in your life that that is just not, you know, ready for change, it's yeah, they can still pick up on your cues of safety, but what's their capacity to to make actual change? I don't know. Can co-regulation happen if one person making the repair is a traumatized individual who has been traumatized by the other? I guess technically, yeah, the answer is yes. But again, you know, everything I've already said kind of stands. I think it's, can can the traumatized person later on in life do sufficient 
development of their vagal break? Yeah. And can that person offer cues of safety even around the person in their life that brought them harm in some way? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Do they have to? No, I mean, this is not a prescription here. This is not me saying someone has to do this, but I, th- I think technically it's possible. Is it likely? I don't know. I think it would take a lot of work. I mean, really strong, really healthy boundaries, a very strong sense of self to be put back into the context of, you know, whatever it was around that person. I mean, that that's some serious work there. But yeah, I, I think it's possible. But that person would have to be in that context or around that other person that traumatized them. They'd have to be there and be able to access their state of safety and social engagement. That's that's a tall order. Keeping your shit under control doesn't mean you're in your safe and social state. So being around that person and like gritting and bear it, bearing it, grin and bearing it, that doesn't mean that you're actually in your safe and social state. That just means you're keeping your shit together. And that's that's great. That's got a, a usefulness. But but that's a, that's a hell of a lot different than being in your ventral vagal state of safety and social engagement and genuinely feeling safe. It's not the same thing. So can we be in these situations where we're around these people that are genuinely triggering for us and we keep our shit together enough to get through the situation? That's possible, yeah. But that's not co-regulation. So I don't know you know, listener, you know, take that and run with it. Hopefully that applies to your life in some way. Co-regulation comes after one person is self-regulated. That That's essential to the process of co-regulation. In situations like we've kind of laid out here from Daphne, in situations like this, I don't hear that one of the two people is sufficiently self-regulated to offer co-regulation. And it, it's a tall order. I mean, the context that's kind of been painted here, it's a it's a tall order. Co-regulation is not going to happen without feelings of safety, genuine feelings of safety in one or both individuals. And even if one person's there, the other one can pick up on it, but that might be so uncomfortable for them because they're not used to feeling safe. They're not used to feeling connected and, and getting those cues of safety. So it might be really difficult for them to accept it, to be with that discomfort, that vulnerability, and then to maintain it. It's a lot. It could be a lot. Those are my thoughts, though, for the situation. I don't know the answer. And even if I did, I wouldn't want to give it to you because I feel like it's inappropriate. So I, I hope my thoughts are helpful or at least bring some clarity to to you if you're, if you're in a situation like uh, Daphne is here. And once again, Polyvagal 101, the replay is coming very soon, fellow stuck not. I do hope you've learned something from this episode. I hope it's helped you to get unstuck or maybe just kind of start thinking about who we try to, or who you try to, co-regulate with. Bye. This podcast is not therapy, not intended to be therapy, or be a replacement for therapy. Nothing in this podcast creates or indicates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek for one in your area if you are experiencing mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed to be specific life advice. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only. More resources are available in the description of this episode or in the footer of justinlmft.com.